Powerful song, eh? Too much trouble to sing that again as a response? All right, I think we should. Turn in the Bible to Daniel chapter 5 with me, please. We come to our fifth of six stories in the narrative section of Daniel today. This is Daniel chapter 5, titled the sermon is The Handwriting on the Wall. I am told on good authority that tomorrow is President's Day. Is that right? That's what I'm told. George Washington holiday, I think. I thought it would muse about that for a moment or two in light of today's text. This brings an altogether serious tone, but an American holiday lightens it up just a bit before we get there. Presidents, premiers, prime ministers, even kings can develop a myth of invincibility. And the greater the humility in a world leader, the greater the faithfulness in that leader's decision making. But the more absolute the power is, it seems the more absolute the myth of control is. Not self-control, which is a fruit of the Spirit, but the ability to control the circumstances of my surroundings. One man said that when we lose control for a minute, we realize we never really had it to begin with. When we lose control of our lives for a minute, I wonder if you've had that experience in your life where you didn't have control for a minute or for a week or whatever the case may be. To come back from that is to realize I never really had control to begin with. Another said a different thing related. He said, self-protection is rooted in our pride. In it, we hold back part of who we are from others because we fear rejection. Those on top of the world live with, often with a lot of fears masked in a cloak of control. That those on bottom and even in the middle can do this also, right? One said, pride is not best defined by what you have, but by what you want. Pride is not best defined by what you have, but by what you want. Related to the commandment about covetousness, where we covet what another has. I think that song that we just sang gets at it, right? Complete in thee, not complete in me. We are complete only in thee, and we are restless as long as we depend on me, my management, my control, my ability to keep up with things if it excludes God. Aren't you glad that God calls us together, one in seven, to recalibrate on his control of all things. Isn't he good to us in that way? What a grace that you're here, that I'm here, that we're here together. Prayer, repentance, thanksgiving, these befit holiness and exude from a heart that is humble 
Humility has been defined as a right assessment of ourselves in light of a right assessment of a holy God. A, a biblically calibrated or right assessment of the doctrine of ourselves in light of the right assessment of God, of His holiness, of His otherness, of His rightness. Humility itself is a gift. It's been said that, that pride underlies almost every other kind of sin. The desire to go it alone, the sense of entitlement that comes with it, lack of gratitude and humility and, and, and prayer, repentance. Lack of gratitude and prayer and repentance is evidence of a lack of humility. So humility should be seen as a gift we should ask God for the gift of humility. We shouldn't take it for granted. I wonder today you might ask Him for the gift of humility. In today's text, in Daniel chapter 5, there are 31 verses. And what we're reading in these 31 verses is a narration of the very last day of the global superpower Babylon's reign. The very last day. This global superpower was reinvigorated to its zenith under King Nebuchadnezzar in, in around 605 B.C., when the title of our book, the figure Daniel, was carried off with one of the early waves of deportation of the conquered Judean people that were carted off to Babylon in humility. Along with Daniel was a host of other teenage boys, perhaps the best and brightest that Judah had to offer. And as they were carted off, so were some of the worship items some of the items from the palace were carried off. This was common in the ancient Near East. If you were a conquered people, a, a demonstration of the conquering of this other town, this other city, this other civilization's gods, was shown by taking the, the relics or the aspects, the vessels of worship from this place to this place. And so in all likelihood, the vessels that will be mentioned in today's text were carted off as not just during the conquest of Judah, of God's people, but because they were evidence that our gods are greater than your gods. That was the economy of paganism. And as we've already seen with the narrative of King Nebuchadnezzar, we've already seen God in unlikely ways making himself known even in a conquering civilization like Babylon. This global superpower's last day is recorded in Daniel chapter 5. It's not King Nebuchadnezzar that's presiding over the downfall of Babylon, though. It is King Belshazzar, who is, in all likelihood, Nebuchadnezzar's grandson. So if you have a grandpa, or if you are a grandpa, you can think Nebuchadnezzar and think Belshazzar, and you can have a sense of the timing of things in the 500s B.C. Belshazzar was no Nebuchadnezzar, though. He was more of a partier than a conqueror. He had access to so much wisdom, but he used it so little. He's partying, keeping the feasts on the calendar, even while the conquerors are outside the gates building a canal. And He's insulated from it, thinking he's too big to fail, riddled with pride. 
He thinks the river would protect him, but Cyrus, the Persian, had created a canal system to allow the special forces to cross in waist-high water, which would that very day lead to the conquering of great Babylon. He thought the river would protect him, and he did not take the warnings of this passage and perhaps messages like it seriously. So when we listen to Daniel chapter 5 read aloud in just a few moments, let us think of King Belshazzar's pride and of God interrupting his pride and of Daniel bringing a gracious warning, a proclamation, speaking truth to this powerful man in the world's eyes. Let's think of that and consider as we listen to this story what God means by keeping it in our minds, by recording it in Scripture. He doesn't keep it in our minds simply as a a history lesson, barely. He keeps it in our minds because He has something for us in knowing this story from history amongst a myriad of other stories. It might be true, but God didn't see fit to record them in a thousand plus pages of Scripture. So why this one today? Most of us would agree, I think, that God is in control. Where we would begin to bristle, if we were honest about it, is we might disagree at the point of whether this control obligates God to act in certain ways for us. Differently, does God's power, does His control, which is profusely spoken of in these gatherings, God's control, God's sovereignty, does that then necessarily obligate Him to us? Mightn't we infer a certain oughtness that God should give us what we think we need or even want because He's in control. And I'm going to, I'm going to argue against that today from the text. I'm going to say no, that, that God is not obligated to give us more time. He's not obligated to be more patient, that we shouldn't presume upon the riches of God's grace because He has been patient or is being patient in this present moment. Instead of, of asking God what He wants for us, or of us, we're tempted to infer that God has to give us more time. Like maybe he gave this guy's grandpa. The stories of Daniel 1-4 to seem like endless time. We might infer, we might tend to think that God not only should give us more time, but should give us more opportunities, more signs, more examples, in order that we will be able to accept God for his godness. And not just speak of his control, but live under his domain, gladly, repentantly, prayerfully. This assessment is a mistake of ours and not of God's, as we shall see. So today I would propose for us, as we listen to this text and hear it preached, I would propose that we should honor God, that God should be honored because of the knowledge that you already have not because of some sign or knowledge that will be. And particularly, I would say, because of the knowledge that we have already, based on His promises made, some fulfilled and some to be fulfilled, I would say that you should honor God because of what knowledge is currently available to you, of what He has done, what He's even doing in these moments, and what He promises He will do. If you're looking for a structured outline in this narrative text, 
Perhaps that's the way to think of it. We should honor God. You should honor God. I should honor God. We should honor God because of what He's done, what He's doing, and what He's going to do. And that might be the way to dig into this text. Without further ado, let's look at Daniel 5, 1 to 31, to see those, those three aspects to come out today in, in our sermon time. Daniel 5, 1 says, King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in front of the thousand. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and of silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought, that the king and his lord, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. Then they brought in the golden vessels that had been taken out of the temple, the house of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives and his concubines drank from them. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Immediately the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall in the king's palace opposite the lampstand. And the king saw the hand as it wrote. Then the king's color changed. And his thoughts alarmed him. His limbs gave way. His knees knocked together. The king called loudly to bring in the enchanters, the the Chaldeans, the astrologers. The king declared to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and shows me its interpretation shall be clothed in purple and have a chain of gold around his neck and shall be third ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king the interpretation. Then King Belshazzar was greatly alarmed and his color changed and his lords were perplexed. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banqueting hall, and the queen declared, O king, live forever. Let not the thought, your thoughts alarm you or your color change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, or the spirit of the holy God. In the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods, were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, made him chief of the magicians enchanters, Chaldeans, and astrologers, because an excellent spirit, knowledge, and understanding to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve problems were found in this Daniel, whom the king named Belshazzar. Now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then Daniel was brought in before the king. The king answered and said to Daniel, You are that Daniel, one of the exiles of Judah, whom the king my father brought from Judah. I have heard of you that the spirit of the gods is in you and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. Now the wise men, the enchanters, have been brought in before me to read this writing and make known to me its interpretation. But they could not show the interpretation of the matter. But I have heard that you can give interpretations and solve problems. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation... You shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let your gifts be for yourself and give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I will read the writing to the king and make known to him the interpretation. O king, the most high God, gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship, and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne, and his glory was taken from him. 
He was driven from among the children of mankind, and his mind was made like that of a beast. And his dwelling was with the wild donkeys, and he fed grass. He was fed grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. And you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, though you knew all this, but you've lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven. And the vessels of his house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And you've praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which do not see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath, and those in whose are all your ways you have not honored. Not honored. Verse 24. Then from his presence, the hand was sent. And this writing was inscribed. And this is the writing that was inscribed. Mene, Mene, Tekel, and Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Paris, or Parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Persians. Verse 29. Then Belshazzar gave the command, and Daniel was clothed with purple. A gold chain was put around his neck, and a proclamation was made about him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar the Chaldean king was killed. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. May God bless the reading of his word and minister grace unto all who hear. So as I told you in this text, we're, we're looking for aspects of reasons we should honor God. And we're seeing what it's because of what he's done, of what he's actually actively doing right now, and what he's promised to do. All these things matter in this narration of King Belshazzar's Life, which is a dishonoring of God, really, in the ne- to say it in the negative. We're looking to, to honor God. So the first in this is God should be honored because of what he's done, meaning in the past. And with, within this, we see what he's done in allowing discipline on his own people, in bringing discipline to King Belshazzar's granddad, and in creation itself, we see what God has done. So let's, let's think about this this way from the text for a moment. Think about... How God should be honored because what he has done in disciplining his own people. The reason Babylon comes to power is they conquer all the surrounding nations, all the way to, to Egypt, by the way. They conquer the surrounding nations in the known world. And they do this and primarily reign between about 600 B.C. and about 538 B.C. is how we date this. Around 70 years is what's talked about. And in this time of Babylon's zenith, Nebuchadnezzar is a conquering, a thinking, a culturally renovating, hanging gardens of Babylon type of king. He does a lot of wicked stuff, a lot of wicked stuff. But for God's reasons, beyond my understanding, he seems to work with Nebuchadnezzar, and we seem to have a kind of conversion type moment that's recorded in the previous chapter, the one that we're reading today. Now, you might have caught through the reading and wonder, why is it that we call King Nebuchadnezzar, his grandpa, he talks of him as a father. And why, do, why might I refer to the queen as his mother rather than his wife? The basic reason for that is because 
There is no term for grandpa and great-grandpa and so on. This is just our fathers. To speak of him this way is par for the course. And to speak of the queen in this way doesn't mean it's necessarily his wife. In fact, it's probably his exiled father's wife, and she's still in the king's court. And if that is the case, Nabonus's wife is the queen mother, and she's there providing a kind of grandmotherly wisdom to the king who's troubled in his thoughts. He's all tore up. If these things are the way to think of it and to look at it, then Belshazzar didn't learn nearly enough from his deceased granddad, and he's now getting last-minute counsel that he's half-heartedly taking because he's whisking Daniel into this, this Babylonian banquet hall party with thousands of people around, a thousand lords is what it said, as well as his wives and his concubines. Another reason why the queen is probably not his wife, probably his mother, because his wives are all there and already spoken of. And so you kind of get a sense of this, this paternal and, and grandmotherly type conversation going on within the story. And I just want to bring that out briefly because it plays within this, this first aspect of what God has done in history and even in recent history. So, so God should be honored in, in, in history because he disciplines his own people and uses Babylon to do it. Look at verse 2. Belshazzar, when he tasted the wine, commanded that the vessels of gold and silver that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, his grandfather, I'm purporting, had taken out of the temple in Jerusalem be brought. So he has these vessels. You might ask, well, why now? I don't know, what, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know the limit to the sacrilege when God says that's enough. I, I don't understand the Lord's patience and his kindness with people. I don't understand his timing. I, no man knows the hour of the, the return of the Lord. We don't know. There's things we don't know. I, I don't understand his timing in every way. I, I do affirm his sovereignty, his control. And I do affirm within this sermon early and often that that does not obligate him to act on our terms. That's the inference we make too often is if God is in control, he must deliver on certain things that I want. And the reality is, is that usurps God's godness and puts you in the position over him. That's not how we approach God. That's surely not how we receive good things from God either. It's the difference between pride and humility, but it's a, it's a, subtle, it's a subtlety that lurks right underneath the surface, oftentimes not said out loud. God should be honored because of what he's done in disciplining his own people. He humbles his people in carting off the best and brightest to Babylon and, and, and leaving a mess in the city, in Jerusalem. The people are humbled. Read Lamentations, read Jeremiah, read Ezekiel. The people are humbled. The prophets are speaking about this. So God is speaking about this through his prophets in the word. And God is to be honored because of what he's done in disciplining his people and also in disciplining Belshazzar's own family. Consider that God brings discipline on Grandpa Nebuchadnezzar. Look at verses 18 to 21, just, just briefly. O king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. And because of the greatness that he gave him, all people's nations and languages trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive, whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. There's no fear and there's no humility evident in Belshazzar in this narrative. When his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened, hardened rather, so that he dealt proudly, he was brought low from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind. This is a summary of chapter 4. You may remember this if you've been following through Daniel. 
And his mind was made like that of a beast, and his dwelling was that of the wild donkeys. He fed on grass like an ox, so he, he was out of his mind. He was, he was on the ground. He was with the dew of heaven until he knew that the Most High God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets it over whom he will. There's a great humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. We talked about how that was gracious, how not getting what he wanted, a continued sort of fat and happiness, was grace to Nebuchadnezzar because it brought him low, literally low, before the, before the Lord God. And came to un, he came to understand that God most high rules, that he rules. So this is grace. What, these are things that, that God has done in history. They're things that God has done within Belshazzar's own family to, to remind him, to, to show him who he is. Instead of reading the proverbial handwriting on the wall, King Belshazzar made a mockery of God, presuming he would give him more time. Signs, perhaps, just like he did his grandpa. But the sign here is more like what the Gospels declare is the sign of Jonah. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repentance and humility are linked. In English, we understand an idiom is an expression whose meaning is not predictable from the usual meanings of its elements, its constituent elements. Dictionary.com grants examples of this as well as that definition, like kick the bucket or um, hanging one's head. An idiom is a language or style of speaking that's peculiar to a people. So this is an idiom, handwriting on the wall. Perhaps you've heard it or maybe you use it. It means a very apparent sign that something bad's going to happen. The phrase comes from Daniel 5. Daniel interprets this mysterious writing in which a disembodied hand has inscribed on the plaster of the palace wall words telling King Belshazzar that he'll be overthrown. So, so an example would be the company was losing money and seeing the handwriting on the wall, the employees started to look for another job. That's a way you would use the handwriting on the wall. So we're all understanding. So that's why we title the sermon the way that we do, because the message comes through handwriting on the wall at this party. And I've already spoken a little bit about his mother, about the queen, about his mother. She kind of explains to Belshazzar afresh this Daniel that apparently had been relegated to a sort of bureaucratic office now. He's around, but he's not amongst the wise men. He's not amongst the first that come in. And by the way, we should say something about Daniel's age here. If he was a very young man in Daniel 1, he's now a much older man in Daniel 5. And a bit older man in Daniel 6, for that matter, because of the changing of the kingdom. But we're saying probably in his 70s, maybe pushing 80 at this point. He's a fairly older fellow. So in keeping with these ages and generations, listen, just because a person's older doesn't make them more wise, but it should. Right? So just because they're older doesn't make them more wise. I mean, you, you can be unwise and be elderly. It's possible to survive in this world and not necessarily gain wisdom. But it should. I mean, we should be able to and should humble ourselves to look to our fathers and our mothers for wisdom. That's the normal pathing of things. So there's messages on every side there for us, right? Just to make it very clear, there's the pursuit of wisdom for the elderly so that you have something to, to grant and to give and to say, and a certain kind of patience with the rest of us as we sort of stumble around and realize to ask for it and figure out what's going on. And there's a certain kind of humility and energy 
and deference that younger folks should show to middle-aged and older folks in order to gain that wisdom and request that wisdom. And there's always a testing of the spirits because age is not a direct correlation with wisdom, now is it? We've seen that. You can probably think of some modern examples of that if you think very hard. But it should be, in the normal order of things, it should be a true axiom to say, get wisdom from your fathers and mothers, right? It should be. And so we take that from this by, I think, proper inference. Daniel's an older man now, and his, the, the, the king's mother helps him reconnect the king, reconnect with Daniel, or perhaps connect with Daniel. Apparently, this king knew of Daniel's wisdom. He knows even more than, he repeats more than what is recorded that his mother told him here. And we see that when Daniel comes in, he brings a message to the king. Now, I'm doing quite a bit with language here, but I'm going to do one more thing. Uh, because I think there's some literary devices going on. I remember Matt D'Amico preached here four or five years ago, good brother, and he introduced his sermon on Melchizedek from Hebrews. He introduced his sermon by explaining what a literary foil is. So I'm going to try to do that here because really Daniel 5 produces a foil for Daniel 4. 4. You may be thinking of foil like aluminum foil. You know those thin pieces of metal that you cover over a dish with before you put it into the refrigerator? Aluminum foil. That's not what we're talking about here. You might think of foil like a verb to, present, to prevent the success of another person is to foil their plans. I'm going to foil your plans. It's proper English to be sure, but that's not what I'm talking about here. Daniel 5 literarily produces a foil. And again, thank you, dictionary.com. Foil is a person that makes another seem better by contrast. A person that makes another person seem better by contrast. Keyword contrast. So King Belshazzar is a foil. He makes King Nebuchadnezzar seem better by contrast. Daniel 5 Daniel 4. So the English lesson was just extra for all of us this week because we needed to know about idioms and handwriting on the wall and foil because to bring this home, you think, oh, that's very important. And I don't want to assume that we have the same understanding of these things as we're walking through this because I've certainly learned in preparing for this. On this first point, I just want to say one more thing about God being honored for what he's done in the people from Jerusalem, in Belshazzar's family. But also, I just want to very, just, just very briefly say that God should be honored because of what he's done generally in creation. Now, this is something easy to miss in this text, but, but look at verse 4, and then at verse 23. They drank from and praised the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. These are the created things. They praised the created things instead of the creator. Look at verse 23. This is part of the indictment that Daniel brings. You lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of his house have been brought in before you. I'm going to say use sacrilegiously here is the, is the implication. And it says that, your lords and your wives, you've led these people not to fear the Lord, but you've led these people, not to say much about polygamy, it's beyond the scope of this conversation, but you've, you've led these people under your care to praise the created instead of the creator, when in your immediate history you have, and you even have testimony to it in your, in your family and in your kingdom, you have evidence to the contrary. Like your, your granddad posts this magnificent proclamation of God's godness that we read about in the beginning and ending of Daniel chapter 4, and this is how you live your life? It's an indictment, but it's an indictment because he's not realizing, he's not honoring God through realizing what God has done. He's not even recognizing the special revelation available to him, and we have much more. We've got a completed canon of special revelation. How much more ought we honor God because of his creation? He made us. More, more on that in a moment, but God, God should be honored because he, 
He made us. Pastor Ian Duguid said it like this. He said, he explained, We covet not only the assets and lifestyle of the super rich, but also of our simple neighbors. We envy our neighbors' car, our neighbors' good looks, their successful career, our neighbors' capacity, obedient children. Alternatively, if we have some of our own small successes in our lives, we boast about our, our assets, our, our lifestyle, perhaps glorying in our fine house or our thriving reputation in our field of business or our trim figure. The reality is we are all tin-pot Belshazzars, puffed up by our minuscule achievement, even though they may not amount to much on an earthly scale, let alone a heavenly one. God's judgment on our empty pride is severe. Our deeds and accomplishments have been weighed and in balance found wanting. When we stand in God's glorious presence, we have nothing of which to boast. Nothing. We are not completing ourselves. We did not make ourselves. We are complete in thee, not in me. Belshazzar's ability to close his eyes to reality has a contemporary ring to it in our age. Just as Belshazzar feasted armies of the Medians and Persians, his adversaries were encamped outside the gates. And similarly, rebellious humanity actively suppresses the truth about God that bombards our senses on every side. Many around us eat and drink and busily pursue an active sinful lifestyle, all the while deliberately ignoring God's revelation of himself in the scriptures, in their consciences, and in the world. Just as Belshazzar used the temple vessels to praise his false gods, so too we take the things that belong to God and use them to feed our lusts and our idolatries. Should we continue along that path, our fate is as deserved as it is certain. End quote. So to get to the good news, we must embrace the facts about our condition. God should be honored because of what he's done in history, period. He should also be honored because of what he's doing right now. He brings unrest on, on us like he does Belshazzar. He brings smokes, spokesmen into our lives to speak truth to us, even to speak truth to power if we find ourselves in it. And he not only creates, but he sustains our very breath. So quickly in this second point, God should be honored because of what he is doing to bring unrest to your otherwise comfortable life. Now, I won't belabor this point because I did a whole sermon on this a few weeks back, but it bears repeating. God brings unrest to people, and that is an opportunity when we're alarmed in our thoughts to repent of our sin once exposed and to bring honor to God instead of clinging tightly to our sins. And getting emotional and even remorseful about situations in our life is not the same thing as repenting. 2 Corinthians 7 is a wonderful help for us in this. It describes categories as a category distinction between being remorseful and being repentant. To be remorseful is to be wanting to get rid of the pain that a certain sin causes. To be remorseful is to want to do consequence management. To be repentant is to go beyond the simple pain of the moment and to take responsibility for my sins insofar as it's clear that my sin caused that particular pain and to say to God, I'm not worthy of you fixing my situation. Would you please forgive me? There's a humility in this. There's still an embedded pride in that. And the foil produces the contrast, illuminates and illustrates the contrast. We see Nebuchadnezzar's actual humility over here 
finally humbled. You're the God most high. I didn't do all the hanging gardens of Babylon. And they continued, I'm going to control my circumstances, even though I'm in a lot of pain in my thoughts and I'm alarmed right now, by hanging the purple and the gold on Daniel as if somehow he can buy Daniel. This very day, your life will be required of you. Doesn't it make you think? If those of you that are biblically familiar, and if you're not, you'll catch it real quick. There's a parable in the New Testament where there's this guy that's just sort of just saving barns and vats filled with stuff with seemingly no concern for those around him. He says, you fool, this day your life will be demanded of you. Who's going to get what you, what you put, what you saved? Certainly not a polemic against stewardship and saving, but if it's a sort of self-centered saving, a sort of self-centered preparing for only me, and not considering God and his people. What he's saying in that parable, I think, is part of what's being said to us through the story of Belshazzar and Daniel's counsel. His warning to him is, your life could or will be demanded of you today. What do you say about that? There's this uh, verse in the Bible that says, today is the day of salvation. It's an interesting verse to meditate on from 2 Corinthians 6.1. It comes in the context of God's people supposed to be ambassadors for Christ. More on that part of it in a, in a moment, that, that, that theme. But today being the day of salvation. That must be gotten right in order for the axiom that floats around our culture to actually have any spiritual muster. It's that, that axiom, and you know this, it's everywhere. It's almost as ubiquitous as, as you do you and be who you are. You know that axiom Live each day as if you're, it's your last. You heard that, right? This, this philosophy, this American worldly philosophy, you should live each day as if it's your last. Well, what in the world does that mean? <laughs> I guess let's all spend all our money and live it up, right? Is that what that means? Live each day as if it's your last. I mean, well, no, there's the Stoics in history, and so we should sort of save so that we can have maximum pleasure right before we die. Let's maximize this life. Make it, make us, let's live for all it's worth. That's what it means to live for today. I mean, in that sense, I, I think I should be like Daniel and tell you that that's devilish. Like to maximize your pleasure in this life, as your primary aim, there's no spiritual humility in that at all whatsoever. So, so, but that, that axiom could mean something here in how we live our lives in the present. Live each day as if it's your last with regard to today is the day of salvation. Live each day as if it's your last with regard to spiritual things. I introduced a book to you two weeks ago when I preached, and it's by C.J. Mahaney. It's titled Humility is true greatness. And I have a little quote from this. I'm reading from it in part to, to commend the book to you, but I'm reading to it also from it also because of how helpful it can, can be. It said, um, the first daily item from your list needs to be this. Begin your day by acknowledging your dependence upon God and your need for God. Page 69. Purpose by grace that your first thought of the day will be an expression of your dependence on God, your need for God and your confidence in God. In other words, honor God. Sin, including especially the sin of pride, is active. It's not passive. Sin doesn't wake up tired because it hasn't been sleeping. When you wake up in the morning, sin is right there, fully awake, ready to attack. So rather than be attacked by sin in the morning, I've chosen to go on the offensive. I've chosen to announce to sin, I'm at war with you. I know you're there. I'm after you. From the moment I wake up, I've learned to make statements to God about my dependence upon God. And in this way, I'm humbling myself before God. In other words, honoring God. 
This is a simple strategy for taking control of the thoughts we allow in our mind. In his excellent book, Spiritual Depression, so Mahaney is now going to quote Martin Lloyd-Jones, another figure you should become familiar with, 20th century preacher. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in your life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Profound and true. So take a moment to review and examine your pattern of thinking from yesterday. Did you spend more time speaking truth to yourself or was most of your time spent listening to yourself? Most of us spend time, more time listening to lies than we do speaking truth to ourselves. And listening, the listening process usually starts as soon as you get up out of bed. Maybe before, right? The alarm has rudely interrupted the gift of sleep, and the listening begins. As we stumble through our morning routine, we're not directing the thoughts in our mind. We're simply at their mercy. We entertain complaints about what happened yesterday or worries about what's coming today, and we look in the bathroom mirror and assess the damage and then brood over how how we feel. We're not in charge of our thinking. We're just there. But instead, he exhorts, you can declare war on pride by speaking the truth to yourself and set the right tone for your day by mentally affirming your dependence upon God and your need for him. Well put, right? One more thing he says in this book that's in this theme. He quotes John Calvin. He says, It is evident that man never attains to true self-knowledge until he has previously contemplated the face of God and come down after such contemplation to look into himself. Starts with God, then you see yourself rightly. I can't resist one more. First Peter says, He writes, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God. Then he shows us how, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. When we humble ourselves each morning by casting all our cares on the Lord, we will start the day free of care. The humble are genuinely carefree before the Lord. I've discovered how true that is about myself and my soul. Where there's worry, there's an anxiousness. Pride is at the root of it. When I'm experiencing anxiety, the root issue is that I'm trying to be self-sufficient. I'm acting independent of God. So the solution is to humble myself again and again. Matt, he's calling himself in the first person, CJ. Matt, humble myself again and again. Acknowledge my need for God. Cast my cares on him again and again and again in this war against sin, against pride. And the Lord promises to transform us, to sanctify us. Peace comes from the Lord. Wonderful little read. Wonderful little read. We should honor God because of what He is doing actively in our lives. He is active in our lives to bring unrest to King Nebuchadnezzar. He he brings a now elderly man, Daniel, a man of God, to talk to him, to speak truth to, to him and his kingship, to tell him what who God is and, and what must be. What must be done? We must respond to him. The judgment is in. And also, God has a sustaining work that's spoken of here that he is doing actively. And and I'm going to read a couple of verses to to drive this home. Look at Daniel 5.23. Daniel 5.23. It's the very end of it. It's a long verse. It's right after the idolatry section. It says after the, the... worshiping the created. It says, but the God in whose hand is your breath. Do you see that? But the God in whose hand is your breath and whose are all your ways you have not honored, dishonored. Our theme there, our thesis, dishonored God. The God in whose hand is your breath. I can't help but think about that word hand. Remember the handwriting on the wall? Your breath is in God's hand and there's this disembodied hand that wrote on the plaster of the palace wall. I don't think about that and the irony of that. But the God in whose hand is your breath. I, 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 that makes me think about 
the sustaining influence of the Lord in each of our lives. I mean, how long can you hold your breath? I mean, I could turn it into a joke, but in all sincerity, like if I were to just ask you to hold your breath, the most of you, like the best deep diving swimmer, probably minutes, right? I mean, the, the information that's trying to be transferred here is every single breath you're dependent on God. So honor him. Every time you breathe, honor him. Every time you eat, honor him with prayer. When you wake up, honor him. Look to him. Thank him. Every Lord's Day, be recalibrated and help repent of where you've gone the wrong way and trust in the Lord's grace to you. It's not your repentance that's saving you, but that repentance is evidence of God's salvation at work in you. And think about New Testament examples of the end of verse 23 about breath. I think about Colossians 1. And, and, and pardon this lengthy reading, but it's so helpful to us. And I believe what the Lord might want to do through understanding Daniel 5 is to think about Daniel or think about Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, not my own, his will, and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Glory to God. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together. Every breath, right? Every single breath. Everything is held together. Every atom Every continent, everything is held where it is held by God's sustaining work. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning of the firstborn from the dead. The church isn't an optional extra in the economy of God. He's the head of it. He's the beginning of the firstborn of the dead. And in everything, he might, that in everything he might be preeminent or foremost. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Glory. And, and, and the opposite approach of that, that is a worshipful text, a beautiful text. I could read with such fervor. The opposite of that is Romans 1. Look at, the, look at the antithesis to Colossians 1. God should be honored because of his sustaining work, because of what he is doing. But he interrupts us and he reminds us that everything that has breath ought to praise the Lord, the way he sends spokesmen in our lives. But look at Romans 1. It's the, exact, it's the exact opposite. The exact opposite, sadly. Romans 1 says this in Romans 1, 18 and following. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. In the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. Does Belshazzar have an excuse? No. Do we have an excuse? No. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. 
Therefore, God gave them up, gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and because they worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed for every man. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. And I must just pause and say right here, there is a certain kind of sin in generations, perhaps of our grandparents and beyond, where they, they tried to sin in private because they still had some common grace recollection it was sin, even though they weren't repentant of it and changing. We've gotten to where we are open-faced with our sin. There's a certain grace and shame. We have no shame in the culture today. We don't have a recollection of, a recollection of the salvation of grandpa or of the statements of shame that came from mom or grandma in the distant past. And I don't even mean one generation. You might have to press three or four to find it. And there's this kind of open rebellion that is, it's not sad because I want to prevent you of your fun. It's sad because it's indicative you don't know the God of heaven. That's why it's sad. So you can't know salvation. And whether the baton of generations was dropped by you or by them, what difference does it make? Go back as far as you have to find. Go back to the English Puritans if you need to. Find a living an example of faith that is no longer with us and bring living faith to the words of the dead that are alive in Christ. Does that make sense? And this is the therefore. God gave them over to dishonorable passions. Their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. In the, in the devolution of things... The men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passions for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So they didn't talk to their thinking and their thinking kept getting more and more and more grotesque and God dishonoring. They were filled, verse 29, I'll stop narrating. They were filled with all the manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree and that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only practice them, but give approval to those who practice them. And we would say, but for the grace of God, that's all of us, right? We would say that. But for the grace of God, that's every single one of us. But you have to be able to say that. Like, can you say, but for the grace of God? Or are you still live in Romans 1? I mean, which one resonates with your pattern and way of life right now more? Is it Colossians 1 or Romans 1? That's the great implicit question of Daniel 4 and 5, I think. That's the foil. God's sustaining work is enough. It's enough evidence for you that you should turn, turn from your wicked ways. And I plead with you, trust in the God who made you. Honor him. Turn your heart and mind toward him. He's doing the work if you're turning to him. All I'm saying to you is receive that which he has made for you. Fight not against it anymore. Turn to him. This Saturday at the men's breakfast, we're going to be looking at the character of God by Timothy Dwight. It's a first story in a book titled Salvation in Full Color. I wish I had time to read an excerpt of it from you. It would tie in so well, but I don't. And sermons have to leave things on the threshing room floor, so I'm going to leave that one there. But you may come out and you can take it home with you. We're going to be talking about this. It's probably already been sent to you by Brother Sean. But a wonderful statement about this that helps us get in tune with what God is doing because of who God is. I have a third and final point. It'll go more quickly than the first two, but it's no less important. Not just to honor God for what He's done and what He's doing, but honor God because of what He has promised to do, what He's going to do. There are certain things He is going to do. So flip back to Daniel to see 
what he's going to do in bringing everything under the Lord and bringing every motive to light and in calling people to honor him. Look at Daniel chapter 5, verses 24 and following. It's, it's, really, it's really a statement of judgment, right? He's making a promise of what he's going to do, in this case, that very day. Then from his presence, the hand was sent, and the writing was inscribed. This is the writing that was inscribed, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Parson. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. You have been, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians, which exactly happened. Babylon fell to Persia. It happened. And so these are, these are statements, the handwriting on the wall, Daniel articulates it to him, but it's a promise of, it's a, it's a warning, but it's a promise of what God is going to do in judgment against the wicked. And, and, and this is a promise for everyone who reads. I said earlier, think about why this story is included in the canon of Scripture. Well, everything is going to be brought under the lordship of Christ. We have that promise in seed in Daniel 4 and in Daniel 2. Do you remember how the, the kingdoms, there was four kingdoms and we talked about the kingdoms that the kingdom that would come and the unshakable kingdom, the kingdom, the, the, the clay and the different elements. You remember, if you go back and read Daniel 2, you'll see that. This was in, earlier in Daniel's life. It's back when, when Grandpa Nebuchadnezzar was king. But he's essentially alluding to that, I think, in the way that he frames all of this. Because what he's saying is everything, as I said earlier in the sermon, every president, premier, prime minister, everything, every single ruler and, and person that doesn't, it isn't in rule, but I'm talking about those that are kingly in their positions. Every single authority will be brought under the dominion of Christ. There will be absolutely nobody that controls their, their authority and their existence into eternity. That's what he will do. He promises to bring everything underneath his domain. Every promise finds its affirmation in Christ. Corinthians tells us this. So no power will be sustained outside of Christ. And no power has been gained outside of Christ, lest we boast in anything. But Christ, he will, bring, he will bring dominion to everyone that thinks of themselves as self-sufficient. And so all the more reason for us to respond in humility now and to honor God. God should be honored because of what he will do. He's going to bring every single motive to light. I've said in this pulpit recently that one of the staunch things about the presence of Jesus Christ in the world at his first coming was, as Luke says, the way that he reveals the thoughts of men. He came to reveal the thoughts of men. There is absolutely nothing in the motivation of man that's hidden from God. And Jesus is God. Nothing hidden from God the Son. God the Spirit. God the Father. Your motives are known. You know, we have to gather a lot of evidence before we can assign motive to people. We need to be careful about assigning motive. Like, I shouldn't assume because you're yawning right now that you're bored with my sermon. I mean, you might be, but you could have just not gotten a good night's sleep last night. Now, I also shouldn't assume that because you didn't get a good night's sleep last night, but somehow you were sitting. I mean, maybe you had a crying baby. Maybe you have a common cold, right? I mean, I shouldn't assume that you just didn't prepare well. You see how I'm assigning motive. Like, first, you don't like my sermon. Second, you didn't prepare well to be here. I could go on down a litany of things. We're not so good at assigning motive. We don't see but through a glass dimly, Right? Sometimes we have to make assessments. That's true. But man, they should, be, they should be made with a lot of information and with some humility. God's not like that. He sees everything. He knows the motivation behind the decisions that you make. Every single one of them. Right now, He knows why you do what you do. You've, you're hiding nothing from Him. And the first coming of the Lord made that apparent. Read Luke, you see it. And the second coming of the Lord makes that apparent. He sees it all, every last blip of it. 
And he will bring every pride-filled motive of man to light. Every single one of them, innermost thoughts, will be brought out. So it's interesting at the end of this then, in light of all that, Daniel's just not really turned as a seasoned saint, as an elderly man now. He's not really turned by gold and purple and standing and ascending in the kingdom of man here with Nebuchadnezzar, or with Belshazzar rather, wanting to put him up and promote him and whatnot. Look what it says. It says, Belshazzar gave the command and Daniel was clothed with this and that. He gets gifts and rewards. He doesn't seem to care. He's already said, I don't want it. Why? I don't know exactly why Belshazzar does this, but that's the place we want to get to. Like We want to walk with the Lord. Daniel prayed three times a day. We'll learn about that next chapter. We want to walk with the Lord in such a way from youth onward, or at least from the time that we wake up and wise up to it, if not as a youth right, right now at the age that you are. We want to walk with the Lord in such a way that it just becomes our, our intuitive response that we're motivated not by riches and rewards and gifts, that we're not motivated by fear of man, and managing and maintaining our comfort, but we're motivated by honoring God. That's where we want the Lord. That's where the Lord is leading us in our sanctification. None of us are perfect in it. I'm not advocating that. But God is leading us to perfection, leading us to a glorified body. That's the gospel. And we have sufficient knowledge, information for salvation. We have sufficient information to honor Him. I, I, I re- remember receiving the gospel. And I remember how I'd had information in my life before that, but it became transformative to me because I, it wasn't just stuff I knew. It was, it was what was in me. It wasn't just stuff that had been done. It's what was being done and is being done and will be done because he that began a good work in me is going to be faithful to complete it, and he will for you too. You need that starting point where you come to Christ. I, I'll end with this. Um, John 3 says this. It's, it's a famous verse, right? It's, it's at all the ball games and... Anybody that ever has ever heard a verse from the Bible, here's John 3, 16. But they don't often hear 17 and 18. So listen to this as a, as a conclusion of the matter for us today. There's this, this binary. And I want you to be in the church. I want you to be amongst God's people by faith. This is God's love for his people. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you believe? Do you believe? There's one name under heaven whereby men must be saved. Do you believe? Boys and girls, do you believe? Man, woman, do you believe? There's one name under heaven whereby you must be saved. Tall, short, rich, poor, young, old, in between. Do you believe? This is the gospel for salvation. It's so glorious. You can sing no longer, complete in me, but you sing complete in thee. And it seems like a fitting response. Why don't we come and sing together, complete in thee, as we meditate on the words of Daniel 5 and the application for our hearts and lives and bring honor to God.